My name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And today, we're talking about Eddie Murphy. Actor, performer, phenomenon, that I was having a lot of difficulty understanding what made me understand who he was when I was a teenager. Like, what movie did I love? Because I'd never watched any of his classics when I was a kid. My girl loves to party all the time, party all the time, party all the time. Sorry, I just wanted to do that. That was his hit single from the 80s. Oh, of course. I was a big Eddie Murphy, the musician fan, more than anything else. Did you listen to a stand-up that like made you go, oh yeah, this Eddie Murphy guy, he's awesome. Well, Eddie Murphy was huge again in the 90s he was one of the big comedy guys but were you a fan of like the nutty professor i would say so i mean the first the nutty professor was the first one i saw and that was everywhere in 96 97 and then he did dr doolittle then there was uh you know he did the voice in like mulan and bowfinger and shrek shrek was really big yeah gigantic but also We've said this on the podcast before that uh, Saturday Night Live used to play on the Comedy Channel in Canada. Like it played right after school when I was a kid. So I saw the whole Eddie Murphy era and Saturday Night Live was the bedrock of Eddie Murphy's superstardom. And it's probably still where he was at his best. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was 19 years old when he joined Saturday Night Live. That is wild. Now, we're doing Eddie Murphy because he's kind of back in the news a little bit because he has the Coming to America sequel out, which is not very good. No, and he's doing a press tour, which is very rare for him. And I was interested in doing Eddie Murphy because... You know, on the one hand, he's one of the funniest people ever. Few people contain that much radioactive comedy in their veins. But he's also someone who very rarely feels the need to be funny. You know, this has led to a lot of very bad movies, movies that he has phoned in, movies when he where he seems to show contempt for his talent. But in recent years, I think it's also given him a strange mystique because he doesn't act much anymore. And there's a sense that he's holding back. And I think this sense was also kind of prevalent when The Nutty Professor came out, because that was a huge hit in 1996. And it came after a period in his career where there was a slump, when he was making unsuccessful movies like Vampire in Brooklyn. People were writing him off. And then all of a sudden, The Nutty Professor came out, and believe it or not, people loved that movie at the time. And they were like, you mean he's been holding this back? He had all of this... Eddie Murphy's back! Yeah, exactly. And you almost get a feeling that Eddie Murphy, when he would try to do something different and that failed, that he would be like, eh, who cares about any of this stuff? I'm just going to make trash because that's what people want. Nothing but trash. If I try, give it my all, I'm not going to win that Oscar. And I'm not going to, and because I didn't win, I'm going to storm out of the Oscar ceremony. A few years ago when SNL did their big 40th anniversary show, they had Eddie Murphy back. And this was kind of a big deal because for years he refused to go back to SNL. Like he had a beef with the show. But then he came back and Chris Rock gave him a big introduction and he came out and he said hi and then they cut to commercial. He didn't do anything. I think he waved and he smiled. Then a couple of years later, he comes back and hosts the show and he kills. Oh, so funny. Yeah, incredible. He did all of his bits again. Gave it his all. And those two appearances juxtaposed next to each other are part of what makes him kind of interesting and also frustrating. The fact that he just chooses to not be funny sometimes. And then if he wants to, he can turn it on as if it's a tap. Yeah, like that's the uh, mystique, right? Is that you know it's still there. It's not like an actor who had it and doesn't have it and never will again. It's like, oh, but maybe this time Eddie's going to give it his all so you'll show up for it. And you'll be like, oh, no, no, this is bad. But he actually 
like looking at his filmography, I was surprised that there's not that many movies. Like he wasn't cranking out like three, four, five films every couple of years to stay relevant. There's just like movies here or there, long fallow periods, and seemingly like three slumps. Well, I think that there has never been a more popular SNL alumnus than him. I mean, in terms of just raw box office numbers, the movies that he made in the 80s, 48 Hours, Coming to America, Trading Places, Trading Places, and Beverly Hills Cop and its sequels, like those were seismic hits. Beverly Hills Cop was the number number one movie of 1984. And we should point out as well that Delirious, his stand-up special, had kind of blown up like no stand-up special had done. And in fact, Raw, the next stand-up special, got a wide theatrical release. And I think for a long time, at least, was the number one live concert film of all time. That's how huge he was. Like he is a performer that when he's on, there's nothing else like him. Like it is undeniable. He got that job on SNL when he was 19 and you look at him perform and you're like, oh yeah, yeah, that's right. I would have given him a job as well if I was any kind of position of authority. Well, he was on one of the bad periods of SNL. Yeah, he was. Lorne Michaels was gone, wasn't he? Yeah. The other big guy on those seasons was Joe Piscopo. No SNL superstar uh, like Eddie Murphy other than Joe Piscopo. So, I mean, you can imagine that in that company, how much he would have popped. But it wasn't just that he popped in that context, is that the movies that he went on to make after that were also very funny. So I said earlier that, like, it's funny how rarely he chooses to be funny, and Watching some of his Golden Age movies this week, I watched 48 Hours and Beverly Hills Cop. Those are movies where he's like not doing a lot of jokes either. Like a lot of his stardom, a lot of his mystique doesn't have to do with the comedy necessarily. No, I think it's about him as a charismatic presence in these movies. I saw one of your reviews where you said you like funny Eddie Murphy more than you like cool Eddie Murphy. And I think I would disagree is that I really like cool Eddie Murphy in something like 48 Hours. Let's talk about 48 Hours because this was his first movie. He was still a cast member on SNL. And to give you an idea of like how big he was. 21 years old making this movie. When this movie came out, Nick Nolte was supposed to host SNL, but he did didn't show up so they said well why don't we let eddie host and doesn't he say like welcome to the eddie murphy show yeah he's the only cast member to host the show while he was a cast member i mean that's madness and i think that why i like his presence in 48 hours is because all the films pretty much uh after this except maybe beverly hills cop 2 are just defined as eddie murphy films because he is such a large presence in them and they're all Eddie Murphy productions you see it in the opening credits well 48 hours he is a tool in the style of Walter Hill's kind of world his presence I think works very well in that where he doesn't need to dominate but when he does like for example the scene where he goes to like the southern bar it's the Eddie Murphy show through and through and it just pops yeah I had never seen this movie before and I guess the first surprise that I had, which, I mean, it's, this movie's 40 years old. It's probably a surprise to nobody but me, but it's not really a comedy. It's primarily an action movie that just has, like, a funny guy in it. I enjoyed the movie. It's a good kind of... Yeah, like Walter Hill B-movie, basically, that blew up, where uh, Nick Nolte is the grizzled cop who's trying to hunt down a bad guy, and he does this Hail Mary pass, this very unusual strategy of getting this armed robber out of prison for 48 hours only who he thinks can lead him to the villain. And that prisoner is Eddie Murphy, age 21. And the two of them have this great back and forth chemistry. The dialogue is very good between them. Like so many of the good buddy cop movies, 
it, they don't really like each other for most of the movie. Oh no, they hate each other. They get into a massive fist fight at one point. Yeah, I love that. And there's something about that friction. Y- you know, the friction is often more productive than the chemistry, if that makes sense. And like Walter Hill is a very stylish director, so to see Eddie Murphy within this context, usually, you know, he's working with comedy directors who just, you know, try not to make eye contact with Eddie, put the camera down, and let him do his shtick. Race is always a factor in these early movies. I can't think of another black comedian or even a black actor before Eddie Murphy who uh, was like him. You know, you had Sidney Poitier, who's this saintly figure. He was the best of his race. And he he's even better than some white people as well. Badman Bill Cosby was a uh, fatherly avuncular figure. Yeah, very non-threatening, you know, friendly, says, you know, fun jokes about being a kid and stuff like that. Eddie Murphy is the opposite. He is aggressive and in your face. Yeah, and there's the guy who I think directly influenced Eddie Murphy, Richard Pryor. But Pryor in his stand-up, was a lot messier and more vulnerable. And when Richard Pryor did movies, he became a lot sillier, a very kind of broad knockabout comic. While Eddie Murphy, like in 48 Hours, his shtick is often walking into a situation and taking control of it by being the most aggressive person there. That's something that he would continue to do in stuff like Trading Places and Beverly Hills Cop. I heard Chris Rock say that Eddie Murphy was the first black comedian who really acted his age. You know, he was in his early 20s and he didn't he didn't come out on stage in a suit. He came out in a fucking red leather suit, unbuttoned his belly button, and he starts talking about like you know, pussy, basically. <laughs> like, like his act was very, uh, very raw and also just very arrogant. Raw, eh? Hmm, that make a good title of a movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, in these early films, they are all about Eddie Murphy kind of crashing like a bull in a china shop with a society that has been set up. Whether it be 48 Hours, where the fact that he's a criminal, he's always throwing it in Nick Nolte's face because Nick Nolte's defining him as a criminal. Or in Trading Places, where the whole gimmick is the fact that, like, what if we took a criminal and we put him in a rich person situation would he succeed or would he fail or beverly hills cop where it's ah this detroit cop who's got real rough manners what if he came to the wacky town of holly weird yeah and eddie murphy has a kind of reactionary side too that will not be a surprise to anybody who has watched his stand-up lately which is oh no which is like 50 percent gay hate speech yeah but he does it in the mr t voice yeah right right in beverly hills cop there's not a lot of real comedy in it and what comedy there is is kind of like a guy goes to uh, an expensive clothing store and there's you know an effeminate snooty clerk there and he laughs at him it's it's that kind of thing or a lot of like well you know i may be i may be from detroit i don't really understand a lot of this weird stuff that goes out in hollywood i'm i'm more of a kind of meat and potatoes guy while also being the black guy in high-toned white society uh i think that may be a little bit of a a rough reading of beverly hills cop a film that i kind of dreaded rewatching uh for this week but i actually really enjoyed when i checked it out i read it more as like eddie murphy stepping into these situations and taking control of them when usually he would be subservient in them. That's a fair reading and definitely a more like generous reading. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably why people reacted as positively as they did to the picture because it ain't much of an action film. Uh, it ain't much of very much, really. It's it's just the Eddie Murphy show. It's not very funny and it's not very exciting. As you said, the mystery plot is just 
totally DOA. Well, he knows what it is. There's no mystery. Like, he knows who the bad guy is, and it's just about getting to these people and getting all these white guys to follow along because he knows what's right, and he just needs to go ahead and do it until they get on his side. Am I crazy, or do they not make star vehicles like this much anymore? A movie that's just about basking in the charisma and the vibe of one star. Uh, We've had this discussion before when it comes to people like Jim Carrey, and I think we came to the conclusions that they don't, oftentimes because Eddie Murphy was kind of defined by his personality at this time, and that stars are kind of flat appeal to everybody kind of people, like The Rock right? That there's nothing that defines them in a very specific way, because if they did, maybe their movies couldn't open in China. You know, this feels to me less like a Jim Carrey comedy where, you know, Jim Carrey is doing shtick. He's doing set pieces and big mugging and gags and stuff. This feels more like a Tom Cruise movie at the peak of his stardom, where it's just about the vibe, the powerful energy emanating off this guy. Uh, He's not even really making you laugh all that much. Uh, You know, I did chuckle a few times watching Beverly Hills Cop. I think the difference between Tom Cruise is that he is kind of like a rock style person who is charismatic and only that, wanting to appeal to everybody. While you do not get the sense from Eddie Murphy in these early pictures, where he is so pointed in his comedy, I think that's what defines him, that... That's why people kind of latched onto him. The way that Chris Rock said, like, you know, he's the first comedian to act his age. I think it's also because he had a very specific and out there and aggressive personality. I'm going to jump ahead a bit because I think it might be useful to compare Beverly Hills Cop with 2002's The Adventures of Pluto Nash, which kind of the nadir of his popularity. I think for a long time it was the biggest money loser in history. And... I mean, that's another one where Eddie's not being all that funny. It's kind of hard to put into words what is missing. Well, I think that the director and the whole production were kind of enveloped Eddie Murphy with special effects and goofiness. And so unlike Beverly Hills Cop, where there's kind of nothing around Eddie so he can just bounce off this stuff, there is so much useless razzle-dazzle that it just crushes him and he barely tries. It's also different when a guy is 25 compared to when he's 42 or however however old he was when he made Pluto Nash. Like, he's no longer the young upstart. His talent is no longer new and exciting. I mean, he's he owns the shop. He's not visiting the shop anymore. So there's just an energy and urgency that's hard to, it's hard to quantify, but it's missing. Like, you look at the posters of the movies that he made in this era, like Showtime, Pluto Nash, I Spy. He looks like he's about to fall asleep taking the photos for these posters. He does not not want to make these movies like the showtime uh, cover is so funny because their faces are so like photoshopped into the image like they could not even get a frame of eddie murphy standing beside robert de niro there's a vibe on that poster that's like yeah we made a movie i don't know do, do you <laughs> exactly. want you want to see it doesn't matter to me well you skipped over though the one big massive hit that brought eddie murphy back from the brink which was the nutty professor i watched this and i also watched his later fat suit comedy norbit which you didn't watch that one did you no i just watched the nutty professor and i went that's enough for me i think it may be useful to compare them let's start with the nutty professor you didn't like it very much Uh, i thought it was okay you know i was longing for the uh, jerry lewis version if i'm gonna be honest and 
you know, back in uh, the time that the movie came out, 1996, when fat suit comedy was all the rage. You know, maybe I had to see it back then. Actually, I did see it back then. Didn't like it very much. Just, you know, the joke is that he's fat <laughs> and he farts a lot. Yes, he does play a very fat professor and he falls in love with a woman and he starts to feel very self-conscious about his fatness. And not only that, but he is surrounded by a family, all of them played by Eddie Murphy. Wait, I don't want to use the word like fat offensively, but they use that word endlessly in this movie. I'm sorry, we're not we're not trying to hurt feelings, but mm-hmm. this is this is the text of the film. He's got a family and Eddie Murphy plays almost everyone in the family, the mother, the grandmother, the uncle. <laughs> Just sitting around a table and farting. These scenes are pretty fun. I, I guess, like, <laughs> yeah, you big fan of Tyler Perry yeah, movies yeah. too? <laughs> I don't know. He's just an incredibly talented performer. I think the, the, the material itself isn't all that funny, but the way that he performs it, all of these stupid characters that he creates... I don't know. There are so many movies where Eddie Murphy just phones it in. And in this one, sweat is coming off him. He is doing everything he can to entertain you in this film. I just thought that if it had been a Jerry Lewis style thing, minus any prosthetics, it would have been much funnier if he had done like Buddy Love and The Professor and just using his sheer acting talents to separate both of them would have been really fun. You mean without the fatness gimmick. Exactly. Which I'm sure never crossed their mind. I mean, he essentially plays jerry lewis in bowfinger so that's would have been the difference would have been yeah and this movie i think owes a lot more to like the mask yeah it's exactly the mask horrifying cgi mixed with practical effects that i'm like please don't do it make it cgi don't you think he's good as buddy love yeah he's all right just big eddie murphy makes me miss eddie murphy okay let me tell you about norbert <laughs> let me tell you about norbert you're you're old enough now to hear about it we got to today and i thought fuck it i have a little bit of time before we record i can't do this without watching norbert because this is a canonical Eddie Murphy text. And this movie is horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's incredible. Oh, wow. I forgot that he plays a Jerry Lewis nerd in Norbit as well. Yes, and he also plays Norbit's wife, his horrific 300-pound monster wife, Rasputia. <laughs> Rasputia. And this movie is unbelievably misogynistic. Every dark element of Eddie Murphy's comedy, all the negative, sour parts of his worldview come out in this movie, because in The Nutty Professor, Sherman Klump is a good man. It's a hypocritical film because it's kind of like, oh, laugh at him for being fat. But also in the end, you know, you know, fat people are good, too. You should be kind to fat people. This one, not at all. It's like you've got this obese black woman and she is a monster from beginning to end, inside and out. And also the movie does something pretty sick, which is that in every scene she's in, she's costumed differently. She has a different hairstyle to look like a different archetype of black womanhood negative archetypes right a negative depictions so there's a lot going on in this movie and he wrote this movie co-wrote it he produced this movie and you can tell when he's phoning a movie in in this movie it's one of his best performances i'm sorry he's incredible as an actor in this film playing these various roles and it's it's monstrous and when you say various <laughs> roles because he does yellow face as well, oh my right? Oh God, yeah. I don't even. I don't even know how to how to get to that. It's bad. Um, That's how you get to it. Terrible. It's evil. It's an evil film. The movie came out in two thousand seven, and no one was like, "Ooh, this is a bad idea." This movie was a hit. Holy moly! Really? Yeah, it made like almost hundred million dollars. I have a theory though that this is the movie. This was his Monsieur Verdoux. This was the one that kind of uh, severed 
the relationship between him and his audience because this movie is so rank so foul and so intense that how can you go back to doing family comedies after this remember when adam sandler said if i don't win an oscar for uncut gems i will make the worst possible movie i ever could Look at uh, Eddie Murphy's filmography. Norbit came right after Dreamgirls. There was this common idea. I don't know if it's actually true, but there was this idea that Norbit came out during the build-up to the Oscars, and a lot of people think that maybe it cost him the Oscar because a lot of people would see that billboard of him in that stupid fucking fat suit, and they were like, "Yeah, maybe, maybe vote for Alan Arkin instead." Yeah, in uh, Little Miss Sunshine. I mean, I'm sorry, I've seen Dreamgirls, I've seen Norbit, I know which one has the more muscular acting from Eddie Murphy. <laughs> So what you're trying to say is that he should have won an Oscar for Norbit. I was reading a funny Letterboxd review by K. Austin Collins, who was like, imagine if he did get an Oscar nomination for Norbit. And K. Austin Collins had this kind of ambivalent take on the movie. He thought the movie was sort of monstrous and, and hideous, but also fascinating and compelling. And he was like, you know, it's not an unworthy performance of an Oscar nomination. And had it had it got the Oscar nomination, Black Twitter would have been born then. I mean, listen, Norbit still has a chance. All those Eddie Murphy O'Tourist, vulgar O'Tourist, are going to reclaim it and his other Brian um, Robbins collaborations like Meet Dave and... Look at the filmography and Norbit speaks for itself. He did this movie, which was, it was his sallow. And then after that, no more. After that, just phoning Tower it in. Tower Heist, uh, Mr. Church. And then finally Dolomite, which in his interviews, he seems like he might be getting a bit of a third or fourth wind. Seems to be trying a little more. I heard him on Mark Marin, and he said that he was going to do a big stand-up tour. Like he had dates planned. Yeah, but it was for 2020. Yeah, and the pandemic happened. So I assume they're saving it for when he can do a tour again. I'm curious to know like what Eddie Murphy wants to do from now on, because he seems very committed to like doing stuff like he's he really hit the press circuit in a way that he seemingly has not done in my entire lifetime just for coming to America. Well, on Mark Maron's podcast, he said that he stepped back from acting because the work wasn't very fun anymore and he was getting all these Razzies and he was making bad movies. And then mm -hmm. after about 10 years, he thought, you know, I'm going to make Dolomite. I'm going to make Coming to America too. And I'm going to do stand up again and I'm going to host SNL just to remind people that I'm still funny. And then I'm going to sit back on the couch. And some of these have worked out better than others. But that's what he said his strategy. Is. Oh, that's good. So he'll come back like every 10 years just to remind people that he can make us laugh and then, you know, go back to watching TV or something. That seems to be the plan. So as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. So our first letter, uh, the subject line is a letter from hell and love. And it goes, dear Justin and Will, I came across your podcast about a year and a half ago and was initially a little weary to listen to another podcast since so many don't hold my interest are better in small doses. But as we all know, the narrative by this point, 2020 happened. And on top of that, I went through a painful breakup and needed a distraction other than working my delivery driver job. So I decided to dive deep into your catalog of episodes and I've listened to most of them. I'm glad I did. I really grew to love the under an hour format of the podcast, a variety of subjects and the casualness and approaching high and low brow movies. I just can't hate a film podcast that will attack old something weird video and Bellatar on the same level of seriousness. So much of the conversations between you two reminded me of the type of discussions I would have while attending film school. Along with the podcast, I have also bought a handful of Gold Ninja releases and I have to say the Godfrey Ho Blu-ray and the book Blu-ray of Matt Farley are sings of beauty. Such a valuable resource. The level of dedication you two guys have is inspiring, especially from an inspiring independent filmmaker animator as myself. Well, thank you very much. That is greatly appreciated, especially that you got the Matt Farley 
Charlie book, Motown on Motown, available now on Amazon. Speaking of which, I know you guys have dabbled in tackling animation before and have just covered Ralph Bakshi, but have you considered covering more independent animators? I would love to hear your thoughts on Bill Plimpton, Don Hertzfeld, Joni Phelps, or even Dash Shaw. Keep up the great work. Thanks. Jake. Of the names he brought up, the only one I'm familiar with is Bill Plimpton. I actually uh, asked Will if he wanted to do a Don Hertzfeld episode, and he went, who? Just a few weeks ago, remember? There you go. Uh, I'm open to it, for sure. Don Hertzfeld is the guy that's been doing those, like, 30 to 40 minute uh, films about, like, a future love story. They're very good, called The World of Tomorrow. I think some of them were nominated for Oscars. And I'm shocked that Will hasn't seen Rejected, the very big online sensation of the guy going, my spoon is too big. Okay, yeah, I I remember you telling me about this now. But yeah, we would definitely get into more animation stuff because i mean i'm not an animator but i have to say that if i could draw that would probably be the main thing i would want to do because i love that kind of stuff but i can't draw so i don't yeah put it on the list i'm happy to do something like that so our next letter is from elizabeth hayes and it goes hey justin and will congrats on your incredible podcast i've burned through the entire back catalog and frequently echo your insights and attempts to impress my girlfriend Ooh, i like that strategy <laughs> that's funny my own girlfriend isn't nearly so impressed <laughs> she listened to chapel trap house she's like why can't you be cutting like these guys uh, she's not saying that no <laughs> i know she's more of a come town gal <laughs> yeah would you guys be interested all right for uh the record <laughs> will's partner does not listen to come town <laughs> would you guys be interested in doing an episode about music video to feature film crossover directors like spike jones michelle gondry or hype williams how do you guys feel about music videos as an artistic medium or as one ever attained pure cinema status to you warmly libby hayes well famously the greatest music video of all time is thriller and that's because it's by the greatest director of all time mr john landis did you ever go through a music video phase like did you get those directors dvd sets that came out spike jones chris cunningham mark romanek no i mean though and the reason i didn't is because those weren't really directors who i was all that interested in i do think music videos are interesting i think it's interesting to like watch the bad music video knowing that martin scorsese directed it and i do like to talk about the aesthetic of a music video and how sometimes when it's transplanted into a feature film context, it doesn't really work. Like you see a lot of like one time uh, feature filmmakers who had done a bunch of music videos and then transition into like just commercials for the rest of their career after their opening film flopped. I mean, have you ever seen Belly, the Hype Williams film? I'm really ashamed to say that I haven't and I've been meaning to for a long time. Hmm. You know, we could maybe do an episode about like one time feature film directors who came from the music video world and kind of structure it around that. I think there's a lot to talk about. So yeah, and I am definitely someone, I feel like a lot of listeners uh, to this may be into it as well, who got those DVD sets and just watched them endlessly. Our final letter of the episode goes, film criticism and YouTube. Hey, Justin and Will, I was looking at Justin's YouTube show the other day and started thinking about YouTube and film criticism. In the early 2010s, a trend started on YouTube. People would make essays, analysis, reviews, and nitpicky videos. For a while, it seemed like this was going to be the next big thing in film discourse. Why isn't the video essay made more of an impact you would think a medium which allows clips could be essential yet film criticism academia and the film discourse in general is primarily written or is this just my own perception keep up the good work alexander ross well i mean you you say this but the nostalgia critic gets like a million <laughs> views on his videos those fucking honest trailers or everything wrong with even red letter media though they're huge yeah millions and millions of people watch those I, I think that for a lot of them their audience maybe isn't the same as like us but what can you say they're hugely influential to the people they're influential i to. don't actually watch them any video essays because usually what interests me is either from a historical perspective 
or it's something that is fairly short. And I think video essays, like I look and I'm like, oh my God, an hour? Yeah, I mean, sometimes they're good. Sometimes you'll see something like, this is why a Jackie Chan fight scene is like a Buster Keaton fight scene, and then they'll juxtapose them. Uh, yeah, I remember when everybody was sharing that and I'm like standing on my high horse being like, but this video is not really showing me anything like fresh or, you know, making me rethink how you approach Jackie Chan. Because the point is like, he shoots wide, lets the action play. It's like, okay. And then you're showing me a bunch of great Jackie Chan action scenes. I tell you, the best video essays are uh, Los Angeles Plays Itself. And uh, what's another good one? Histoire du Cinema by Jean-Luc Godard. <laughs> no, I don't know about that. You pitched feature films that are video essays at one point, right? Now that you mention it, I would be kind of interested in that. I think that an issue that sometimes arises with video essays is the people feel the need to sound serious. So if I start hit playing a video essay... And I hear somebody talking like this. I'm like, no, thank you. Right, right. Like, you don't need to convince me that you're serious by your tone of voice. To me, again, the only valid video essay are ones that are made like trailers. And you hear the voice say, uh, coming soon, a movie that says a billionaire could become a vigilante dressed as a bat. Uh, what's the deal with that? Honest trailers, Batman. The only video essays I watch are the ones that explain endings to me. <laughs> What's the deal with the ending of Batman versus Superman? Or parody ones like Powder, Outside Appearance by Kentucker Audley. Oh, well, that was hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> so this week on our Patreon, we go back to the well and we talk about Kevin Smith. Okay, wait, I can sell it better than that. Last week on the show, Justin and I were just musing about Kevin Smith. We went off on a tangent about him, as we always do. And we were talking about his 2010 horror film, Red State. And we were like, God, wouldn't it be crazy to watch that again? I wonder, maybe it would be interesting. He, he kind of tried on that one, didn't he? I think we'd probably go in with more of an open mind, right? Spoiler alert, we fucking hated it. But well, don't you want to hear us talk about it? Yeah, I listen, you people listening, I know our audience. You people are interested in some Kevin Smith talk. Yeah, you want to jump back into the... Um... The Viewisk universe. Snoochie boochies. <laughs> so $5 a month, Patreon dot com slash the important cinema club and like i said ten dollar patrons get to vote on what an upcoming patreon episode is and the topic is 80s anime and the choices are currently legend of the overfiend akira and fist of the north star and legend of the overfiend the film that popularized the uh tentacle genre in japan Ooh, it's crawling up there almost gonna take the lead that's interesting because we've had some feedback saying please don't do legend of the overfiend that's not a legitimate movie well i think that is just indication that we have to do it right will we'll see i mean tentacle porn doesn't really uh float my boat no, me neither does not float my boat at all but that's why you have to confront things that are challenging to be able to discuss them and we'll just discuss anime as a whole because because, you know, I watched it. I feel Will has probably walked by a TV that's playing Pokemon at some point. I've, I've seen anime. <laughs> um, I yeah. know of this anime that you speak of. Yeah, I respect so it. So check it out at patreon.com slash the important cinema club. And next week, what are we doing, Will? There were a lot of cult filmmakers who emerged in the 60s. People like Herschel Gordon Lewis, people like Russ Meyer, weirdo visionaries who worked on a shoestring, people who we still talk about today. But there was one cult exploitation filmmaker 
filmmaker, a real mad visionary who we don't talk about all that much anymore. Maybe it's because his movies weren't that good. Ray Dennis Steckler, you mean? Yes, Ray Dennis Steckler. His most famous movie is The Incredibly Strange Creatures Who Stopped Living and Became Mixed Up Zombies. Wouldn't his most famous be the amazingly titled Rat Fink Abubu? It was called Rat Fink Abubu because the people that he hired to do the opening credits didn't write and. It was supposed to be called Rat Fink and Boo Boo, but they just wrote A and he didn't have the money to fix it. And this is one of his bigger budget productions. I mean, Ray Dennis Steckler, I don't think he's a great filmmaker, but he has been a long time subject of interest for me. I've seen most of his films because he is a true backyard auteur. Back in the day, before it was easy to make a movie, he was making fly by the seat of your pants, crazy, uh, insane movies. And he also worked with some of the greatest cinematographers in Hollywood history before they were famous. People like Vilmos Sigmund, people like Laszlo Kovacs. I'm genuinely surprised that there has not been any Blu-ray releases of Ray Dennis Steckler's catalog. I don't know what's happening. I think he's a subject ripe for rediscovery because he's made some terrible movies, but he's also made some interesting movies. Movies like The Thrill Killers, movies like The Lemon Grove Kids Meet the Monsters. I mean, I'm looking at my shelf right now and seeing that William Greffy box set and I'm like they got to William Greffy before Ray Dennis Steckler? I saw on a Facebook thread somewhere, I think it might have been in the Vinegar Syndrome Facebook group, something like that. Somebody was like, why isn't anyone doing anything with the incredibly strange creatures? And I think somebody said uh, Media Blasters has it. Oh, you know what? Media Blasters may own all of his films. Yeah, and there are apparently some issues with the elements on that one, but they're trying. Because they released all of those pictures with Joe Bob Briggs commentary tracks. That's right. Uh, His commentary on Blood Shack is very good. Oh, yeah. What's the name? of the uh the chooper chooper. (laughs) that's the alternate version where ray dennis steckler delivered a movie that was like 55 minutes long and the distributor was like buddy you got to get this up to at least 70 minutes so okay 15 minutes of rodeo footage it's like the incredible strange creature who died and became a mixed up zombie i hope you love burlesque shows at the circus you want to hear about ray dennis steckler folks this is a, a truly insane visionary a guy who made movies that will redefine your perception of what constitutes a movie and of course he did direct pornography. Of course. Although he was not a very good porn director. Oh, th- no. I don't think we're really going to venture too deep into that. So that's what we're doing next week. And until then, my name is Justin Nicklin. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Justin here, interrupting briefly to thank some of our new Patreon subscribers, who include Jay, Cameron Dover, Lucas Barwenchik, Joseph DeLeo, and Glenn Del Rossi. Thank you very much for becoming subscribers. We could not do it without you. And we now return you to our regular schedule programming. Well, I saw that you watched a canonical classic recently, James Cameron's Titanic. Yeah, I hadn't seen that one in a really long time. My girlfriend put it on just to have something kind of dumb to watch in the background on Netflix. And I was just doing a little work and I thought, well, this might be kind of fun to have on in the background while I do some work. And I was sucked in. I had my laptop on my lap and then I closed the laptop eventually. And I just sat there and watched this movie, which is amazing. What won you over? Everything about it. I was won over before they even hit the iceberg. Because I read that review you posted on Letterboxd and I squint to go, is he being ironic? I get that you're saying that, but I'm actually not being ironic at all. I thought the love story between Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet is beautiful. I thought they have great chemistry together. I thought it <laughs> Sorry, was... Sorry, I'm just calling your uh, girlfriend right now and she's like, yeah, Will lost a bet. He has to go <laughs> publicly and say all this stuff. <laughs> no, no, I swear. There's a common rap on Titanic that it's kind of like corny and that the dialogue 
dialogue is a bit bad. But I mean, I don't know. I don't think I actually agree with that. And James Cameron, we all know, is a weird guy, a real gearhead, uh, somebody who's probably unpleasant to be around. James, out! As he likes to sign emails. And you would think that this is not a guy who would be very good at creating a compelling love story, but he's smart. He just rips off Romeo and Juliet, and he's got two young actors just early on. They're fresh-faced, and they have a lot of chemistry together, and no irony whatsoever in this love story. It's not at all a revisionist love story. It's just a full hanky weeper. And I don't know, I was just very moved and compelled by it. And then the boat uh, hits the iceberg, and the whole second half of this is riveting. Mm. And you know what really makes it good? Billy Zane. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Billy Zane's incredible. I mean, he's just a great villain. Love him. Terrific charisma. Why didn't this lead to better things for him? I don't get it. I think he just makes weird choices. Like, I don't know what is up with his career. Like, I've pitched a Billy Zane episode to you, and you were like, I don't know if there's enough to talk about there. We should do him soon, yeah. Because uh, he had this movie, and then there was... I don't think he ever did a studio movie after this. It's insane. Uh, I'm trying to look Titanic. And after that, he got together with John Landis to make Susan's plan. He used all of his Titanic clout to film an Ed Wood screenplay. Right. I woke up early the day I died. I like that movie. I'm glad he did it. But after that, it's just like Blood Rain and the Scorpion King 2. That's crazy. Like he didn't even have like a Hollywood shot after that. Like he was a joke by Zoolander. Yeah, Zoolander only came out a couple years after. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh. I remember Billy Zane. He sucks. I don't get it, too, because he had Hollywood movies all the way up to Titanic, like Demon Knight and Dead Calm and The Phantom. Um, and then he made Titanic and then it was over. OK, but anyway, what I was actually saying about the movie and why it's so good is in the second half, when the ship is sinking, Cameron clearly did a lot of research. He was clearly obsessed with all of the details of the ship. So beyond the Kate and Leo story. There's just stuff happening all over the ship. Cameron is thinking at this point in the night, what would be happening in this part of the ship? What would be happening in the mechanical section? What would be happening in the gears? What would be happening in the captain's quarters? So it's just very textured. And there are so many characters who come in and out who just leave a really indelible impression. I have a feeling that people's perception of Titanic is just colored by its popularity. Cameron makes movies that are so good that they become so popular, which then leads people due to oversaturation from being like, "Ugh, this is not good. Yeah, and people were sick of hearing that Celine Dion song. Yeah, and I remember Titanic being so dominant because it was released during the ice storm in Canada when we had school off for like seemingly four weeks. So I saw the movie multiple times in theaters with my Leo loving sister at the time. Did you have the two VHS oh, set? Oh, of course we did. You're not allowed to have a house without having that two VHS set. You know what? I like the movie enough that I have the DVD that he put out on my shelf. You should watch this movie again because it's riveting. It's very entertaining. I will. Kate and Leo are incredible in it. I, I was watching this movie and I just thought this, this is what movies are all about this is pop cinema at its finest this is firing on all cylinders and if you don't like this you don't like movies <laughs> thanks peter travers <laughs> <laughs> a, a pulse pounding thrill ride <laughs>